to Planet Watch. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Welcome. And today on the program, a conversation with former California Coastal Commissioner, Executive Director, I should say, Charles Lester, about the threats facing coastlines across the United States and what the Commission has done about those threats, from drilling to development to sea level rise. What do we want the future of coastal areas around the United States to actually look like? We have a podcast. You can subscribe for free to our Planet Watch podcast by going to planetwatchradio.com. And uh, later in this show and in between shows, if you want to get in touch with us or ask our guests a question or make a comment, you can write to us on email via radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Yes, and thank you for getting in touch. And we have a couple of science stories, as we always start out with the program. And in just a moment, uh, we will have a story for you from one of my Cabrillo College journalism students, Margarita Rodriguez, who went out to the Watsonville wetlands. And we'll have a story for you in just a moment. But first, a couple of stories that our interns, Tommy Martin and Sanaya Lakdawalla, have uh, covered for you. And Tommy, we're going to start you off. The Trump administration plans to end direct funding of the International Space Station in 2024 and work to privatize the orbiting laboratory. A budget request to be released Monday includes $150 million in 2019 to expand international and commercial partnerships over the next seven years, but does not mention any specific companies. Boeing currently operates the station, which costs 3 to $4 billion annually. Under President George W. Bush, NASA began outsourcing cargo supply flights to the station by SpaceX and Orbital ATK. President Obama then used Boeing and SpaceX to send astronauts to the station. While both these decisions were met with opposition, the plan to privatize the International Space Station is already receiving extreme backlash. Mark Mulqueen, Boeing's Space Station Program Manager, said walking away from the International Space Station would be a mistake threatening American leadership. Yeah, I got a brief comment on all that. Uh, of course, uh, notice he said 2024, they'd be ending the funding for the space station. Well, I will wager <laughs> there's no chance in hell that Trump is still going to be around in office in 2024. Uh, by the way, I used to work at NASA Ames Research Center on the space station. I was working on the uh, data network design, and among others, we were uh, gathering data and making computations to simulate whether we're going to use a ring topology between the data stations or a star topology, a fiber optic local area network on the board the space station. Very interesting stuff. And if you want to know how to find out when the space station's going over your area and you can see it in the sky, big bright dot with nine or ten people inside going at 17,000 miles an hour in free fall but at 300 miles up, you can, let me, you can let me know and I will tell you how to find out and blow your friends away by saying, here, here they come. It's a good party trick that Joe does. And you won't see the people, by the way. They're too far away. Um, and, of course, the big news of last week was that a private rocket had been uh, launched with a Tesla attached to it, and that was a big success. And people are lauding this as a much cheaper way to deliver things to places like the space station should they continue to be funded. So did that car drive the rocket into space, or did the <laughs> rocket drive the car into uh, space? It was the other way, <laughs> okay. the latter. Uh, so let's move on to another topic from Sanaya Lakdawalla. 
New research by the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis found that removing fossil fuel subsidies would only have a small effect on CO2 emissions and renewable energy use. The study estimates that CO2 emissions by 2030 would only be 1-5% to lower if the subsidies were removed than if the subsidies remained. Also, removing energy subsidies in isolated and developing regions could have a larger impact on poor households than on the fossil fuel industry. These results don't necessarily mean that the fossil fuel subsidies should not be removed. They only indicate that we must be cautious about the impacts and must also implement other policies to successfully mitigate climate change and promote renewable energy infrastructure. Thank you, Sanaya, for that story. That's kind of a vexing story in that we all would assume by common sense that, hey, you know, fossil fuel industry is pretty heavily subsidized. There's a lot of pork and government largesse involved in propping up that moribund industry and that by removing that, you know, we could move things along. And what Sanaya just reported was that, well, it's not as great as we think. I kind of wonder, well, I'd like to look at the source papers, you know, what's the methodology of that study? What were their assumptions? You got to do the math, you know, you got to do the numbers. But Still, yeah. 5% is pretty decent. Yeah. Uh, it, would, it would be worth the 5%. I, I think we could uh, all say that was Every a good little thing. bit we can get, yeah. It's not so little. So, um, thank Thank you for that story. And um, I would like to introduce this next story. This is from one of my students at my Cabrillo College broadcast writing course. His name is Margarito. And um, his name is Margo Re Sorry, Margarito Rodriguez. He uh, came to this country at age five with his mother. And there's a lot of politicians who would say that people who are here without documents are somehow don't care as much about our country. But uh, Margarita is an example of someone who cares deeply and volunteers his time at the Watsonville Wetlands Center in Watsonville where they are preserving and educating people about how to preserve the very delicate and remnant wetlands of California, of which there are some beautiful ones in his community. So we're going to go to that story next from Margarito Rodriguez. It was 11 in the morning, and six volunteers with binoculars around their necks stand near a brushy field by the Watsonville Wetland Watch Center looking for birds. These volunteers are part of the Watsonville Wetlands Watch, a program that aims to restore the damage done to Watsonville's six loose, a type of wetland that harbors native wildlife. By planting thousands of native plants per year, they provide habitat and food for wildlife. One of the plants was a baby sedge, a triangular stem-like grassy plant that provides seeds and shelter for birds. So uh, we use native plants to uh, in our restoration projects in order to add a lot of diversity to the areas that we're restoring. So many of our sites are pretty much a monoculture, which means that there's just one plant that's growing in the whole area. And that one plant oftentimes is very invasive and is not a native, is not native to this area. Um, it came from say Europe or South Africa or a different uh, place in the world that has a similar climate. And that plant came here and was able to, um, use all the resources that it's used to in a similar climate, but without the natural checks and balances that keep plant populations in control or in balance in a habitat. Once the bird watching is over, these volunteers start on the main work of the day, planting, transplanting, and collecting seeds. They carry buckets of tiny plants and place each one of them carefully in a tiny hole. If they survive, these plants will provide cover for many 
bird species. A few feet away, Lori Rubio, a volunteer with a smile from ear to ear, stops looking for weeds long enough to describe why she became a volunteer. I, we moved here in 2004 and we noticed the wetlands all along where we live. Didn't know too much about them. We're very interested in finding out all about our environment. And um, so we started volunteering here and worked out around the wetlands. And then we needed a native garden, a demonstration garden to show people what natives do and how you can incorporate them in your yard. And so we established that garden in 2006. With new and emerging problems like water quality, the Watsonville wetlands need more native plants than ever. When it rains, runoff from the streets and fields pollute the wetland. A native plant acts as a sponge and filter as they consume many pollutants. the gravel path near the muddy Watson Bazoo, I could see that the water was cloudy. As I walked, I picked up a few hot Cheeto bags that stuck on plants. The wetland is next to a kid's park and on top of a, a bridge where cars rushed at about 30 miles per hour. In the last 30 years, the city of Watsonville has grown um, pretty quickly and so um, all of the new streets and impervious services contribute quite a bit of runoff to the sloughs um, and so water quality is a really big issue for the Watsonville wetlands. Even though California has lost about 93% of its original wetlands due to its conversion of agriculture, the Watsonville Wetlands Watch Center has a new solution to the problem, educating the new generation. So at Watsonville Wetlands Watch, um, we believe that it's important that we educate uh, the youth um, because eventually these individuals are going to become adults, uh, whether it is in this community or a different community. They will have the power to vote on specific issues that are related to the wetlands or the environment. Um, so we want to make sure that we educate these individuals now so that when they uh, so that they learn the values of the wetland and the environment so that when they get to these um, positions or uh, they have the power in their life to say something about the environment, for example, like in voting, uh, they can vote or uh, express their opinion for the right matters. For Planet Watch Radio, this is Margarito Rodriguez. All of that from you. Thanks, Margarito, for that story. Um, and we'll, there'll be other stories from my students because I assigned them to do a five-minute environmental feature. And we'll be listening to more of those as future Planet Watches go forward. So I'm very excited to introduce our guest for today. He is a longtime conservationist, environmental educator, and um, importantly to our discussion today, he has been at the Coastal Commission for more than two decades. He is no longer there. His name is Charles Lester. Dr. Lester has been working in the field of ocean and coastal management for more than 25 years. And today we're going to be talking with him about conserving all of our coasts, not just California's coast, given some of the threats facing our coastal states, both, you know, California, North Carolina, or wherever you're listening. If you're in a coastal state, um, there are many problems facing the coast. We talk a lot on this program about uh, global climate change and how that's going to rise sea levels. So how are these regulatory bodies set up by governments 
positioned or not positioned to help us respond as human beings to either get out of the way or prevent future development that will then cost us all. So that's the question at hand. We'll be looking at drilling development and sea level rise and even talk about how wind energy fits into all that with Dr. Charles Lester. So welcome to the program and thank you for being here today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. I guess let's start off by just uh, telling us a little bit more about your time at the Coastal Commission. You worked under three different governors. Yeah, that sounds right. Three different governors. I came uh, out to Santa Cruz or back to the Bay Area in uh, 1997 and started working in the Santa Cruz office as a, a district manager, running the daily uh, you know, review of regulatory and planning items, and then uh, was there for another 20 years, working my way up the ladder and eventually became the executive director in uh, 2011. A pretty powerful position, and for some people who are trying to build houses on the coast, a frustrating obstacle to their dream house. So tell us what the Coastal Commission is, and what are its powers, and what can't they do? Because in other states, they don't have Coastal Commissions, I don't think. It's pretty unique to California. Uh, it is it is pretty unique, the form. Other states do have coastal programs, and we can talk about that later if you want. But the Coastal Commission in California uh, is a state agency. Uh, really, its origins really go back to 1972 when we had a proposition. The citizens of California were very concerned about what was happening on the coast. There was development sprawling out along the uh, edges of cities and beginning to block our access to the shoreline. There were large buildings and hotels going up, like the Dream Inn here in Santa Cruz, which was uh, built before we had a coastal commission. And so there was a lot of concern about that. The voters passed Proposition 20, which created an interim coastal commission to sort of put a hold on things while we did a plan for California. Wasn't there a nuclear power plant uh, planned for Davenport or something, and that sparked this whole in thing? In Davenport, and they talk about one in Bodega Head also. Uh, so there were all kinds of things being proposed and talked about. You go any place on the coast today, and people will be there to tell you what could have been there, which is not there now because we have a coastal commission. If you go to somewhere like Puerto Vallarta and look along the beach, it's just all high-rise hotels right on the sand, and that could have been us, right? Or even Miami Beach. Yeah. <coughs> or parts parts of Santa Monica. And for those not uh, from right around here, Davenport's a sleepy little tiny town uh, about, I don't know, nine or ten miles up north along the coast, along Highway 1 from Santa Cruz, and it's uh, most famous, I guess, for its big, now-defunct cement plant. Uh, but anyway, uh, so... And the Coastal Commission, if it was deciding today, probably wouldn't have allowed a cement plant right there either. No, I don't think so. So yeah. we, we created this Coastal Commission in 76. The legislature uh, made it more permanent and gave it a broad mandate to protect coastal resources and to protect coastal access and recreation along the shoreline. So it has a very broad mandate. There are 12 commissioners who are appointed uh, for each by the governor, the Senate, and the Assembly. So one of its unique uh, qualities is it's, it's an independent commission. It doesn't speak to any one political authority. And I think over the years that has uh, been good for California because it's had an it's only uh, adherence is to the law. And I, I have to ask, you know, I understand in a way you were ousted, you were pushed out. Is there a less effective Coastal Commission? Because the narrative then, and I didn't really know much about it, sounded like the people who are supporting you staying were worried that it was an effort to get more developers on there who were compromised by, you know, compromising the law. Is that an unfair characteristic characterization for this story? Well, um, 
you know, it it is a very political body. Even though it is an independent commission, it's still political. And of course, we have some of the most expensive and desirable real estate in the world. So, being in the middle of that as a state agency can be uh, characterized with a lot of conflict between both sides. We also have a very strong environmental community, as you know. And so, you put those two together, and it's going to be political. Uh, I thought the um, you know the public discussion of uh, my dismissal by the commission in, in uh, 2016 was a little simplified, but certainly, you know, part of what was going on was a, uh, a struggle about the power of and how the commission operates, including relationships between the staff and the commissioners. So another important aspect of the process is that the staff is tasked to make its best professional judgments analyze the facts of a situation, apply the law, and make a recommendation to the commission in a public hearing. Now, that's a, an important part of California's process because it makes it all very transparent. The decisions need to be made in public based on the facts and the law, and sometimes that can be an uncomfortable thing. Uh, it got political, unfortunately, in my view, and uh, what happened you know, it led to uh, the commission deciding that they wanted to have a change in direction. In the end, and looking back, I think uh, it has resulted in a, a renewed and strengthened commission because it really uh, turned a spotlight on what was happening with the Coastal Commission. I think some people had be, begun to take it for granted, and so there's been a lot of attention now in the last couple of years on what they're doing. Uh, there are six new commissioners since that that moment in time, and so it's... Uh, I think in the bigger picture, the silver lining was that people have a renewed attention and appreciation for the mandates and the, uh, the authorities that the commission has to protect the coast. But they wouldn't they wouldn't appoint someone to the Coastal Commission who is anti-coastal uh, law, right? I mean, that's not how... Well, we're seeing is. that in the federal level right now where you have the head of the EPA who was anti-EPA. Are, are we seeing some of those appointments be counter to the coastal law? Uh, I'd say uh, currently probably not, but I mean it is a they are political appointments. So mm -hmm. during the eighties, uh, Governor Duke Majin, I wasn't here, I was in graduate school at that time, but he was very hostile towards the Coastal Commission. In fact, one of his platforms was to abolish the Coastal Commission. Can he and, do that? Could they do that? <laughs> well, they certainly tried, and uh -huh. there were huge budget cuts to the commission in the early eighties, and the appointments of various uh, people during that time are political and so at one point there were eight Republican appointed uh, commissioners and four Democratic and that shifts the basis of the decisions. So so the makeup shifts every time there's a new governor, is that my it can, understanding? Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, the governor's appointees are at will appointments. Mm -hmm. The legislative appointments have fixed terms, four year fixed terms. Mm -hmm. So another way of putting I guess what uh, Rachel and Charles were just reviewing was that back when the transition away from your leadership happened, uh, basically, and the good news is, uh, whatever anybody there was trying to get away with and <laughs> didn't really happen, it uh, has worked out okay. And I should point out at this juncture that Charles is one of those rare examples of somebody who knows a lot about science and is in a position of political and legal power, and that's what we need. <laughs> that's mm -hmm. why I majored at Oberlin College in physics and government, two disparate things, but you need people who can 
converse between those two worlds, you know, science and policy. And so uh, he was—he now teaches at UC Santa Cruz, mostly legal and policy things, I guess. And you were also teaching before you came here to, at uh, University of Colorado at Boulder. And, and his background is in geochemistry. That's what you got your PhD in. Where was that, by the way, again? Uh, that was my undergraduate degree at, oh, okay. at Columbia oh, in okay. uh, geochemistry. That's when I first studied uh, CO2 emissions and climate change about Oh, 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. you got your PhD at Berkeley. You yeah, PhD yeah. was. And you at Berkeley. worked on some in summers at the Lamont Doherty Observatory, That's which right. is uh, in back east somewhere, right? Yeah, oh. it's uh, upstate New York, not too far from Columbia. I've always wondered how. On how was that? Did you work with Wally Broker at all? Uh, I took a class with Wally Broker, and uh, he, he's one of the original deans of the whole global warming right. and the ocean circulation. Yeah. I don't know if he's even alive anymore. Could we get him on yeah, for an interview? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not if he's right. dead. Probably not. Yeah. We haven't figured. <laughs> how to communicate beyond the grave but um, back to our drilling development and uh, sea level rise let's start with drilling there was a big protest in Sacramento over the weekend I think it was over the week um, as we covered on this show a couple of weeks ago Trump wants to open up drilling do you think the California Coastal Commission can play a role in preventing any offshore drilling well they certainly have a strong role to play in the process uh, and uh, they have uh, within state waters, of course, regulatory authority over any proposed development. Uh, but that's not what we're really talking about here. We're talking about potential expansion of federal uh, lands development, oil development, beyond three miles. And those are uh, lands that are managed by the federal government, the Outer Continental Shelf. W one of the unique parts of the California program is they have something called Consistency Review Authority. And this is a an authority they get from the federal statute, the Coastal Zone Management Act, that enables the state agency to review federal activities or federal uh, proposed permitted activities for consistency with the state law. So in the past, the Coastal Commission has reviewed new lease sales, new proposed exploration plans, new platforms, any kind of development on the Outer Continental Shelf for consistency with our state law. And we have state laws that say protect the marine resources, guard against the oil spillage and things like that, minimize the risks of that development. And that enables us to say, no, we don't think that's a good idea. It's not a, f a foolproof mechanism. Uh, if the commission, for example, said, no, you can't uh, do that oil lease out there because of the risk of an oil spill, that would be stopped for the moment, but then that could be appealed to the Department of Commerce, and that's the federal government. Uh, and that, again, is also de you know, dependent on the facts and how the decision maker evaluates the pros and cons. And, and if they even read the facts. Well, that's mm. sometimes an issue also. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, they care enough about the science to actually read the report. Or if they read them whether they think they're facts, right? There you go. Uh, that's part of the problem right now is you have people in the federal government who don't even read the dossier. They don't read the briefing packet. And so, therefore, they can just form an opinion out of the air. Well, let's hope that doesn't go that far. Uh, what else can the commission's legal structure do to stymie or slow down or prevent or tangle up in the courts? drilling potential on the coast. Right. Another okay. important aspect of the coastal program is that it, it really relies on local governments to do the day-to-day -day permitting and planning of development. And so every local government is required to have a local coastal plan that's approved by the commission to implement the state law. And one of the things we did you know, the last time around in the early 80s when Secretary Watt and the Reagan administration were pushing offshore oil 
as many local governments adopted ordinances themselves that then became part of the coastal program. And those ordinances, for example, in Santa Cruz would require any proposed onshore development needed to support offshore oil to go through a vote of the people. And so... And I heard they could have a boat, though, a ship that just sucked the oil off the There are technologies available, yes, to, um, you know, not have to deal with local governments or Mm -hmm. even state state waters and state lands. We have a Mm -hmm. state lands commission also that's a sister agency to the commission, and they have a direct role over any activities on state lands, Mm -hmm. which is from... You know, mean high tide out to three miles. Maybe but we just need to extend what state property is out to twenty miles offshore, and we'll cover. Yeah, it. Well, you could try, but there's, uh, <laughs> there's been a lot of a lot of legislation and litigation over that. And that yeah. was that was settled back in the fifties about who owns what. Who owns the undersea oil? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that kind of brings to mind the issue we alluded to when introducing you. Uh, there's two kinds of power production: renewable, you know, green power. Uh, that involve the coastal area, uh, both of which start with W. (laughs) We mentioned wind power. There's also wave power. And, you know, wave power is going to be a much more limited resource, I predict, than wind power. But, uh, and you know, they're both somewhat controversial. Um, And, you know, I have heard of stories where even on the land within a three-mile zone, I think there's also a three-mile zone not only offshore but on the land (laughs) that the California Coastal Commission maintains a firm grip on any kind of development there, including proposed small wind power projects, you know, for residential homes. And we talked a little bit about this the other day, but um, what can you say about that as well as, you know, the issue of wind turbines, large wind uh, deployments offshore such as, you know, Cape Wind or in the Gulf of Mexico, how far away they'd be, whether you'd even see them, mm-hmm. all those issues, and then anything about wave power that you can sneak in there too, we can cover That's later. That's a lot of questions. <laughs> yes, how about yeah. just one question? How are you guys going to deal with wind energy? <laughs> well, firm grip is a good characterization of what the Coastal Commission does, but uh, on land and at sea, uh, wind energy, you know, the, when I was at the Commission, uh, we were certainly talking a lot about the the potential for wind energy, and we looked at some onshore also. Were there uh, any proposals to do any? Or no, was nothing, it all just conjecture? Uh, nothing really um, substantial or tangible at the time. And and my understanding now is that they're basically looking at one area down near off of San Luis Obispo for potential uh, wind energy and offshore. It, it, offshore. And it may be uh, in a place that's not a concern from a visual standpoint. Uh, and so the technology has been evolving, but as we know, we've seen it uh, unfold in other countries and even in our country uh, off of Massachusetts now. So we know it's technically feasible and depending on the circumstances, there may be places in California where it could work. And you know, personally, I think that the state ought to be seriously looking at that as an alternative to uh, any any kind of um, fossil fuel based energy. And do you have any uh, idea why places like Massachusetts are further along in exploring that? Or are they just more prone to having better wind energy than the Pacific? Or uh, well, that's a good question. I think probably some of it is having to do with the um, you know physical characteristics of the area. That and you know we have a very narrow continental shelf, and we also have a very uh, broad and complicated regulatory system. Not that Massachusetts doesn't, but uh, you know, I think in terms of pursuing California, that's something that has yet to become uh, a, a serious target for the industry. Right. So back to the land issue, if someone wanted to have a bunch of wind generators onshore, that might get shot down based on the visual 
piece. So if you're visual, and there are also uh, biological issues potentially. Uh, there's been a lot of study of the impacts of uh, various you know, wind farms on birds and bats, uh, raptors in particular. And so the commission is going to look very carefully at anything like that to see what those impacts might be. It's so interesting that you know. In the old days, that you could protect a whole bunch of things like the natural features and the view and the creatures in there. But if you don't ramp up your renewables portfolio, all those things are going to be endangered anyway. So it becomes a, a different world we're in having to make decisions to say, well, you know, that's actually the beautiful site of wind generation that's saving us from dying of, you know, Well, that's right. Heat. I think uh, <laughs> we're in a, in a place right now where we have to reframe our, our thinking and, and think more broadly about well, what, what are the implications for the planet of certain kinds of energy technologies and that the Coastal Commission ought to be uh, taking seriously any proposal for alternatives to fossil fuels. And just so folks know, we're talking with Dr. Charles Lester. He's former director of the Coastal Commission, so anything he's saying is not the official Coastal Commission position at the current time, but he has a long history of having been there at the helm and in the commission, so... Um, He's speaking from long experience. Back to that other W for electrical power generation using the oceans, wave power. Uh, we're actually looking to, if anybody out there knows of a good expert on wave power, uh, I had a guy who came and spoke in my Cabrillo college, community college classes uh, for a number of years, and then he kind of vanished. But wave power is proceeding apace. I think Portugal right now is about the only country that's really actually got something on the verge of commercialization. And this is as distinct from tidal power, by the way. This is actually wind waves on the surface of the ocean. So it's actually solar energy because the sun makes the wind and the wind makes the waves. And uh, I think there was a proposed project up in Mendocino and there's also something going on around the base of one of the towers, the Golden Gate Bridge. Do, are you on top of any of that? I, I don't know the latest on that, but I can tell you again when I was with the commission, there were various ideas floating around. Huh. Uh, and, but the technology and the economics were not really there yet to go full bore on those kinds of things. Yeah, so. it's kind of a thorny one. I mean, there's marine fouling of the metallic components of these devices that would transduce the up and down motion of the waves into electricity and it, there's a lot of problems still to be solved. This is also an area where the economics and the subsidies as your previous story suggested are really important. So mm -hmm. if you level the playing field a little more, maybe these alternative technologies will be more viable. And we did a story, uh, we ran a story from one of my students about a wave generation plant um, up in Oregon that's going to at least yield what the various types of generators, which ones are the most efficient, which ones cause the least damage environmentally to the ecosystem. So that'll be interesting to follow. Um, I wanted to move to the, the second topic, um, which is development. We have first D, drilling, second D, development. The reason the Coastal Commission got started was the idea to stymie constant development of giant towers of hotels all the way around our beaches. Um, I remember, and there's still one before the commission, there was a proposal for an eco-resort just south of here, but it was to be built right on the sand <laughs> in Marina somewhere. And I thought, eco-resort right on the beach. What's wrong with this picture? It's going to be gone in less than 20 years. Why build an expensive billion-dollar project so close to the water? And it's still not been built, but I wonder... Um, what some of the success stories are that you can tell us and what you see in the future for halting this march, which seems inevitable, of this high-end 
moneyed uh, interest right on the beach because everyone wants that ocean view, right? So, so I think um, you know it's important that people uh, understand that the Coastal Commission really wasn't anti-development; it was pro-development that was appropriate. So what the Coastal Act did was set in place certain environmental constraints, and then within that development could work potentially and if you look at the, our coast today and the urban footprint that we have it's basically the same urban footprint that we had 40 years ago and that's because the coastal act said new development should be located in already existing developed areas and we should protect rural ag lands protect the scenic view sheds and all of these rural landscape values and not sprawl out and we basically did that and we did that by saying here's the line you can develop on this side of it, but you can't go on that side of it. And so we've allowed a lot of development. In fact, about 90% of what the commission hears in terms of permits is approved, but uh, which is you know, important, an important observation. Most of the things are approved, but they weren't approved in places that are, were harmful to the environment. And aren't they scaled shorter and There's, lower? Uh, yeah, an <laughs> important change, part right? of those 90% are the uh -huh. conditions. And so a lot of the heavy lifting that the Coastal Commission does is working with applicants to say, okay, yes, you can have your house here, but maybe not exactly in that location and maybe not three stories. How about two? Uh-huh. Right, so there's height limits. Uh, this is Planet Watch. If you just tuned in, I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. We're talking with Dr. Charles Lester. And you can email us. <laughs> you can email us a question or comment right now, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Yes, and thank you. So there was a power plant that got completely denied. You say 90% of the uh, applications are approved, but maybe scaled downward. Um, is everything creeping slowly higher so that, you know, it used to be only one story allowed and now it's two and eventually be three. So is it just slowing the process of development or is it holding a line? Well, uh, there's always pressure to develop more. And, and if you look at the coastline and, and the urban areas, like just take around here, Live Oak and uh, Pleasure Point and some of the areas right along the coast, you'll see that uh, we still have development and generally it's it's bigger and more expensive than it used to be. And a lot of conversion of old beach cottages or um, smaller scale development into, into larger development. And that's been a national trend also. So yeah, that happens. But, um, you know, the rules that we had in place allowed those changes. Now, once in a while, a local government or a community will try to change the rules to get more. A good example of that would be uh, the the back and forth we had about the redevelopment of the La Bahia down on at the boardwalk in Santa Cruz. The commission approved a, a redevelopment plan a number of years ago that was consistent with the plan that we had approved for Santa Cruz, which had height limits. That plan never happened. The developers came back with a new plan, and that involved changing the rules to have a larger height limit. The commission said no to that and said, no, this is basically spot zoning. You're coming in, you want to change the plan just for this one location. We've already decided that this plan is a good one, this height limit. And so that was denied. They then came back again, consistent with the existing rules, and the commission approved that. So the, again, the principle is stay within the constraints. You can develop, but don't do so in a way that harms the environment or the human and social aesthetic values that we've decided are important. So here comes the, the third <laughs> part of our discussion, which leads perfectly from what you just said. So we're approving billion-dollar homes on the coast because everyone wants an ocean view. We're approving, you know, people who have lots of money building hotels 
because people are willing to pay a lot to be in a hotel room that looks out over the ocean. At the same time, we've had several guests on this program who are scientists telling us this, all of those are going to be underwater in 50 years most likely, or at least damaged by high tides and storms because of sea level rise, because of global warming. So at what point does a legal regulatory body like the Coastal Commission say the taxpayers aren't going to keep paying for people to rebuild in places that are prone to flooding, to coastal flooding. We're not going to even approve new buildings in places that the models say are going to be underwater in 25 years. And of course, the models keep going up. They keep saying, well, we had it wrong. It's actually worse. It's actually three to six feet in, you know, by the end of the century. So, People are willing to pay a premium, and I, I think you said this offline, even if they live there for five years and then their house just gets destroyed. Um, at what point do we get off the hook as taxpayers to stop doing anything about those people's insurance rates and everything else? Because the, the, the public's bearing the price of these things, whether well, you'll see that as true or not, but I'm curious. Yeah, well, that's a really great question, and... Um you know, when I was at the commission, and particularly when I was the director, we launched a program to start looking more seriously at sea level rise and adapt. What we're talking about adaptation planning issues. You know, what are we going to do about rising sea levels? Partly for this issue of, you know, why do we keep reinvesting in areas that are not not only going to be more hazardous but are hazardous now? And like Pacifica, just up the coast, they keep losing houses to the ocean. Right, and you have to ask <laughs> who ends up paying for that when something yeah. is no longer viable in a location. And if you look nationally, you know we have a flood insurance program that is, you know, in the process of going bankrupt and huge deficits because of the hurricane damages that we've been paying out in the last decade or so. So that's a serious concern. The thing that I've been focused on is, is which I think is even more. Uh, harmful in terms of our historic concern for our coastal resources and the public's right to get access to and along the shoreline is how we respond to these coastal hazards and the implications for our beach resources. So, for example, if anyone in Santa Cruz knows that Santa Cruz County knows that houses tend to uh, put seawalls or piles of rock, revetments, what we call, call them, in front of their homes to protect them from the sea, these have uh, serious impacts on beaches. And so... Briefly, if you harden the, the shoreline, uh, the, the natural shoreline in, in most of California is what we call eroding or receding. And it, a beach will maintain an equilibrium width and march inland with that trend, all things being equal. Mm -hmm. But if you fix the back of the beach with the seawall and the sea continues to rise, the beach gets squeezed in between. This is the coastal squeeze that people talk about. So last year, the USGS produced a study that concluded that potentially up to two-thirds of Southern California's beaches are going to be swamped by the year 2100, assuming we maintain the back line of the beach where the little low wall is along Santa Monica Bay or you know all of these areas where development exists. If we don't move that development, those beaches are going to be swamped. You're pretty now, much saying 
it's wealthy homes against the public's right to have a beach and go to the beach and Pretty sit much. on the beach and get Pretty a suntan. That's yeah. it. We're making that decision. And and, that, and who makes that decision? And yeah, well, the Coastal <laughs> Commission is right in the center of that decision, and that was one of the reasons why we started uh, providing more guidance to local governments and and actually launched a grant program to have local governments update their plans to start thinking seriously about this. You know, the extreme case of this is if you look at some of the development patterns in Malibu, for example, where we already have some of the most expensive homes, you know, in the world potentially right on the beach. And they're built up on caissons, and at times the mean high tide, and that's important because the public owns everything below the mean high tide. Those are public trust lands. The mean high tide is beginning to move inland. And where you have houses on stilts, basically, where the mean high tide can go under those houses, uh, rather than what we normally talk about is the Coastal Commission taking private property, I think we're going to start asking our <laughs> private homeowners taking the public's property. They could come over there and say, hey, this is our land. You just We moved under your beach That's house. That's right. I mean, it might be good for our uh, skin cancer if we all have to hang out on the beach Underneath under the these house. houses. But <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, Tommy Martin has a question for you. Yeah, a couple questions. Um, first one is, what are the most effective ways for individuals and groups to protest and hopefully prevent the Trump plan to start oil drilling off the coast. This came in on the email, right? Yes, thank Correct. you, Diane. Would question. you repeat the email address so we can get people in? Yeah, radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. Thank you. Well, I think the general answer is to uh, get involved and stay involved. So there's lots of processes available to the public. Uh, for example, the the uh, protests and the rally last week that I attended in Sacramento. There was also an action in Santa Cruz last Saturday out on uh, Cal's Main Beach. Where you know the the presence of the people and the public is very important. And then submitting comments to the federal government or supporting the state agencies that might be taking actions. And also to get involved with uh, local and regional and even national groups that are involved. So, for example, I'm on the board of Save Our Shores, which is a long-standing uh, organization in Santa Cruz County that has long worked to protect the beaches not only in Santa Cruz, but Monterey and the Monterey Bay Area. And those organizations really make a difference and can channel your concern and involvement. And if you're listening in Chapel Hill, um, you have a coastline too in North Carolina to protect. And there's probably other groups working to protect the Outer Banks and Cape Hatteras and places like that that are incredibly beautiful. And some of the national groups are present in all of the coastal states. Uh, yeah. Oceana, and, uh, Sierra Club, NRDC. Uh, you know, the, the list is long, but there are a lot of groups concerned about these activities that people could um, turn their attention to to help figure out what to do. What are you teaching now at UC wait, Santa wait, Cruz? I think Tommy has one oh, more. Another one, that's right, yeah. that's right. Yeah, this question is from Barry Scott. Um, I would like to know if your guest has read the letter from the Regional Transportation Plan for 2040, and it's got a quote here, thus rail lines can represent an economical greenhouse gas efficient mode or for certain types of freight movement and for getting the public to the coast and home again. Um, given the importance of rail as an efficient transportation mode, what is the likelihood that the Coastal Commission would support a trail-only use of the corridor? They're referring to the rail line tr slash uh, trail mm -hmm. plan. Yeah, I don't know the, the um, details of the most recent letter that you talked about or what the likelihood might be of the commission now doing that. I can tell you that that issue has all long been a concern and it's, it's always been really interesting to me that in fact the law that we passed in 1976 has a provision that says minimize vehicle miles traveled. 
This is in 1976, where the state law said, you know what, we should try to reduce how much we're driving. We had traffic then. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, here but, to say. You know, it's, it was such a forward-looking yeah. statement of um, principle yeah. at the time. And so over the years, when the commission has worked with local planning, coastal planning, transportation, in particular regional transportation that you mentioned, has been important. So are there ways to um, provide alternatives, like either bus or you know, certain kinds of transit and certainly pedestrian and access to and along the shoreline like a coastal trail and that's an aspect of this rail trail discussion. Uh, that's always been important. Uh, shuttles from satellite parking lots to deal with parking and issues when people try to get to the beach and the neighborhoods are always concerned about residents come non-residents coming in and trying to park and get to the beach so it's always been an issue and what tommy and uh, barry scott thanks for sending that to us barry uh, referring to is a very recent letter just sent by the current california coastal commission to ambag which is association of monterey bay area governments supporting modern efficient clean rail service not only for freight but also for people and i you know i challenge anyone out there listening <laughs> Tell me how a trail-only thing where you rip up the rails is going to reduce vehicle miles traveled at all significantly. I mean, yeah, there are hundreds, maybe even thousands of people having a great time riding their bicycles, and me included. But how are you going to get all these people up and down who are choking Highway 1? We're all stuck in traffic on Highway 1 south of Santa Cruz all the time. How are you going to solve that problem with a oh, bike trail? That's another radio show. <laughs> yes. But let's get back to sea level rise, shall we? You know, those rails will be underwater anyway. Um, let's talk about Will Travis's suggestion. I think it was radical and exciting to hear somebody say, we need to have all the houses on rails so we can pull them back or they need to be on stilts. We either need movable cities if we're going to get past this 21st century without giant swaths of our population losing their homes or we're going to have to have everything on stilts. Which do you think it's going to be or is it going to be both? Uh, well, I think it's going to be an amalgamation of all kinds of things and uh, hybrids included. So we already have people starting to build on stilts. You can see it in Santa Cruz County, even down uh, uh, near Seacliff, for example, houses that are right on the beach, but they're built up on caissons. You know, they mm -hmm. are anticipating mm -hmm. what already happens there in the wintertime, especially. Some people are starting to move back. They're thinking more forward about uh, the viability of their land. And the commission has started to push alternatives where the developments are uh, more movable, quote-unquote. So that large hotel you referred to earlier, that's actually going to be in Sand City. And as far as I know, it's still uh, slated to go forward. But one of the big issues was the highly eroding uh, sands there. It's built on a, a sand dune, basically. Castles uh, in the sand. And so <laughs> one of the uh, issues that we dealt with was the conditions on foundation design and how easy was it going to be to start um, moving the hotel back when it became necessary. So, you know, this is a real issue for uh, people who are constructing along the coastline and for the commission and policymakers. It's yeah. not like the people behind you are move, moving too. So, you know, if you only look at the first three rows of houses all along the coast, they don't really have anywhere to move to. They can't move back because someone's behind them. So kind of have to well, go and, up. And that, that's right. That's the issue. And, and some other states are, have been dealing with it even more directly after these large hurricane events, which has led to uh, buyout programs where the public is actually proposing to buy 
land or buy properties from people who are in these hazardous areas in a way to reduce that future problem. And some of those work, but you know, people like to hold on to where they are. And so the challenge is figuring out how to do right by private property owners, making sure that they get to enjoy the benefits of their land, but only for as long as that those benefits are, can last without harming the public resources. And mm -hmm. so we need to start thinking about ways to roll back economically. Uh, it's, um, there's a whole body of law about billboards, for example, and, and phasing those out and amortizing the, the financing of that so that you know, maybe when you buy your next shoreline home, uh, you will know already that it's only going to last for another 30 years. So your investment will reflect that. You your know, mortgage people won't love that idea. <laughs> if you, they give you a 30-year mortgage and your house is only going to last for 15. Well, yeah, it's the, your problem, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, I, the market is already beginning to reflect some of these risks on the East Coast uh, where it's a much more um, challenging, immediately challenging problem. Um, but, you know, I think the, the real estate people can just start focusing on the next line back, like you said. Yeah, it's crazy to think that we have to wait for a hurricane to kind of uh, wipe the slate clean and then buy out these people. Let's hope it doesn't come to that and that we think ahead and use efforts like the Coastal Commission in order to get ahead of these problems before they come along and we're tearing our hair out in the middle of emergency. I appreciate hearing from you and learning more about this mechanism of the Coastal Commission, maybe other states will adopt similar things to California. Yeah, this was a great interview. Very articulate and informative and a preview of things to come. And uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, stick around for another few minutes if you like. Um, you, we don't have the video feed going today, but you might see that Charles is wearing a red sweatshirt kind of thing. And red is sort of appropriate for a couple things coming up this week. Of course, what's happening on Wednesday. February 14th, <laughs> Valentine's Day. I don't think that's why he's wearing no, that's red. That's why I wore it, yeah. Oh, it is? Okay, well, good. So, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. And um, speaking of red, the, the angry red planet, uh, Mars, is uh, going through the head and heart of Scorpius right now, the constellation in the early morning sky, and the gigantic orange supergiant star, Antares, is doing its Antares thing. That name comes from, well, you know, the Roman god of war, Mars, was A-R-E-S. Well, the star Antares rivals Mars in its redness and brightness, so it's anti-Aries, Antares. Well, anyway, Mars and Antares are just about the same brightness and the, almost the same color. Early morning sky near the moon, I think, in the next couple of days, maybe this morning. Um, so watch for that, and this is the time of year when in the evening, Long after the last faint trace of blue atmospheric twilight has faded from the sky, you can see this ghostly whitish cone of light ascending high into the sky. And that is the dust in the plane of the solar system scattering sunlight. It's called the zodiacal light or the zodiacal light. It lies along the constellations of the zodiac, which mark the plane of the solar system as seen edgewise in the beginning of night. So it's best in the early morning before twilight in August, but now it's after evening twilight best in February. That's when the plane of the solar system is tilted up at the highest angle to our horizon. So watch for the zodiacal light. And um, I'm going to race our viewers. I always look forward to Venus Day, what I call Venus Day. That's the day when I can first see the planet Venus again gleaming low in the evening western twilight. And uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I think it's going to happen in the next couple weeks. So be watching for Venus and even scan it with binoculars. And if you see it before I do, email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And, um, well, let's see. One last thing. There's a really brilliant 
fireworks of a star, bluish-white gem, diamond in the evening southeastern sky that you can't miss anywhere in the world, really. Although if you're in the southern hemisphere, it'll be more in your northeast sky. It's the brightest star in the sky, other than the sun, the one that looks the brightest. It's Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, the dog star. People always say, are you serious? <laughs> well, anyway, it's lined up with the three stars in a row in Ryan's belt, and it's so bright that it twinkles like crazy. All the stars twinkle because of atmospheric turbulence, but Sirius, we notice it the most because there's the greatest fire hose of light coming to us through the turbulence in the atmosphere. So check that out, and here's a real weird one for you. Cross your eyes slightly while looking at it, and you'll get two Siriuses right next to each other, and you will see them independently twinkling. The twinklings of the two Sirius images that you see are independent because the paths of light from Sirius to your two different eyes actually go through different turbulence blobs in the atmosphere, and so it actually affects the light coming to each eye separately. That is a really weird... You're, don't worry, your eyes won't get stuck when you're crossing them. But, if you uh, see Joe Jordan <laughs> standing outside in the evening with his eyes <laughs> crossed, cross. looking up, Serious. he hasn't been struck by lightning. He's actually <laughs> doing a scientific experiment. Right. <laughs> so, well, thank uh, you for that. We will um, look, oh, up, oh, look gotta, up in uh, the sky, and uh, we have a few thank yous for people yeah, who have yeah. supported us uh, through the Patreon, which is a way you can get online and make a very small donation every month, $2, $5, $10. And what that will do is help us get out to other stations. And it's already helped us get on the air in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Columbus, Ohio, and Santa Cruz. So if you'd like to see this program get further out through other radio stations, you can subscribe at patreon.com. And I want to shout out real quickly the names of our key supporters so far, and you can join them. Brad Hubbard Nelson from Massachusetts, Yay. from Virginia, Anne Dubrow, uh, Diane Warren, Linda Snook, Eugene Beer from Ohio, uh, Rick Gladstone, Leah Harlow from Virginia, Anthony Alvarez from Virginia, thank you, thank you. David Bornstein, Elaine Hebert, Jill Cody, Michael Saint, Alan Sinclair, Linda Marin, Pauline Seals, and Gwen Shoup. Thanks to all of you. And, uh, well, Planet Watch Radio is our kind of brand new website. Check out our most recent archives and keep an eye on the sky. This is Joe Jordan. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. See you at planetwatchradio.com. Bye-bye.